we uh, enter the Easter season, uh, we are going to do the next couple weeks with uh, some fundamental truths in place, and we're not going to try to explain them, we're going to quantify them, we're not going to, I'm not going to try to convince you that they're real, I'm just going to, st- we're going to state three things that absolutely are true, that have to be true, and if they're not true, then quite honestly, we're absolutely wasting our time here today. And we're wasting our time with our Easter stuff if these things are not true. So here they are. Here, here they are. First thing is this. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus into the world. Okay? God loved us so much he sent Jesus into the world. That is a fundamental truth. It is absolutely essential that we believe that. And I don't mean you believe it like you believe in, you know, whatever. I mean you believe it like you know it. That we also have to assume as absolute truth that Jesus was God in flesh and blood. Because here's the thing, if he wasn't, the cross doesn't work. If he wasn't God in flesh and blood, if he wasn't fully God and fully man, and, and I'll say it again, we talked about it at Christmas, and I'm sure we will again, it doesn't matter if we can't comprehend that. It doesn't matter if we can't wrap our heads around it. It doesn't matter if we don't understand it. If he was not fully God and fully man, the cross didn't work. Absolutely true. The third truth is that Jesus was sent for a purpose. That purpose was to redeem and save humanity as a blood sacrifice. Now, those things we accept as fundamentally true. I'm not going to try to convince you they are true. They are true because they changed the course of human history. But it still poses a question. And so John MacArthur wrote this book. I highly recommend if you like to read it. It's called The Murder of Jesus. And um, in his book, he poses this question. He says, how could such a thing come to be that the Son of God would die at the hands of men? So think about this for a second. How could such a thing come to be that the Son of God die at the hands of men? In other words... If everything we just said about Jesus was absolutely true, how did the cross happen? How how did that even take place? If he was fully God and fully man, which he was, I mean, what happened? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of do an investigation. Okay, I love the CSI shows, and I'll watch almost any of them. And so we're going to kind of do a look at the cross from two sides. We're going to look at it from humanity's side, and we're going to look at it from eternity's side. Okay, so that's what we're going to do this morning. So you have to understand it this way. When you think about the cross, we always say, well, there's all, you know, Jesus came to die for us, and that's the way it was, and that's all that matters. If that's all that matters, then why is all this other stuff in the Bible in the first place? If that's all that matters, why is there such elaborate links to describe what is, can be only called a conspiracy to kill Jesus? Because that's what it was. It was a conspiracy. It was a plot. It was a heinous evil act. It was a plan. And it doesn't matter what Jesus' purpose was. Man had a purpose as well. And man's purpose was to put to death this guy. It was a conspiracy. It was a plot. Uh, MacArthur says this in his book. It's really interesting. He says this. In the case of Jesus of Nazareth, we're confronted with 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 more than just a scandal. 2,000 years ago, an unprecedented conspiracy of injustice, cruelty, and religious and political interests sentenced a man guilty of no crime to the most barbaric method of execution ever devised. 
Worse still, the victim was no mere man. Jesus was God in flesh and blood. The creator of life died. The very thought is nearly inconceivable. Yet, mysteriously, from the wellspring of this repugnant historical fact flow unceasing rivers of mercy. Here's what MacArthur's saying. MacArthur's saying there are two sides to the cross. There's the cross, there's the side of the cross that we celebrate. And there's a side of the cross that we kind of talk about but gloss over and ignore because we don't think it's important because we just celebrate the one side of the cross. But both sides are presented to us. Man's side, God's side. A conspiracy, and eternity. And so they're both important. And so we, we have to understand there's two purposes. Man had a purpose for the cross. God had a purpose for the cross. And that's what MacArthur's talking about. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to look at this first off from man's side. Because we need to understand that. Once again, let me say it. You may say, why does it matter? It matters because it's in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about man's side of this conspiracy. And it was a conspiracy at the highest levels of government. You know, if, if you kind of, if you, like, if you like those kind of movies and stuff where there's conspiracy to high levels, well, this is your cup of tea because that's what the cross was. It was conspiracy at the highest level. And so here's what happened. Let me kind of give, give you some background to kind of tell you what set things off. So this all started two years prior. Two years prior, John chapter 5 tells an event where Jesus heals a man, a man who, was, who had been lame. And the day he healed him was a Saturday, which in Jewish culture was the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day they considered a holy day. And you didn't work on the Sabbath day. So understand what I'm saying. Because on a Saturday morning, Jesus healed a dude who had been born lame. They decided, maybe we need to do something about him. Because Jesus did something good for someone, these conspirators said, you know what? Maybe we need to start taking this, looking at this guy. Maybe we need to start thinking about this guy. Maybe, just maybe, he's dangerous. Now, the conspirators, here's where the conspiracy gets really crazy. Because at this time, Israel is under Roman uh, rule, so the Romans are in charge, yet the Romans allow this, the Jews to govern themselves, and they are governed by the Sanhedrin, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. We would kind of call it like the Supreme Court, but these are, this is the religious leaders of Israel, and they rule Israel. Okay, and they rule Israel religiously, and I'll use that word, not spiritually, and they rule Israel politically. The leader of the Sanhedrin is a politician, and we'll get to him in just a bit. And so two years earlier, because Jesus said, heal the guy, they said, we've got to take him out. You fast, flash forward nearly two years to where Jesus is called because his dear friend Lazarus has been killed. And Jesus shows up four days later, and he raises him from the dead. So, Jesus took a man who was dead and raised him to life. A, a reason to celebrate. Unless you are a, one of these groups whose power has been threatened. Because by now, people are starting to follow Jesus and they're moving away from the religious establishment and they can't handle that. And so after Lazarus was raised from the dead, 
There were two plots that began to form. One we don't talk much about is the plot to kill Lazarus. And there was a plot to kill him, which is kind of interesting. When God raises a man from the dead, your immediate response is to try to put him back in the grave. That's kind of, that's messed up, isn't it? But the next day, the next day, the day after Jesus raised Lazarus, there was a meeting. And this is what happened at that meeting. It's in John chapter 11. Beginning of verse 47, we see these words. This is, the, this is the religious leaders of Israel. The living priests the Phar- and the Pharisees called the high council together. That's the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do, they ask each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. So, let's stop there and just make sure we understand this. They say, well, we got a problem. This guy's doing miracles. That's their problem. This guy's healing people, raising the dead. I mean, we got a problem. Doesn't sound like a problem, right? But we got a problem. Verse 48. If we allow him to go on like this, as if they could stop him, which is really interesting. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Okay, and that really is the... The thing we're going to circle back to. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. That probably wasn't going to happen. But this first part of that is the important part. If we allow him to go on like this, everyone will believe in him, which means they'll follow him and stop following us. So you need to understand the conspiracy to kill Jesus was a power grab. That's what it was. From human's perspective, it was a power grab. They were going to take him out. Verse 49, Caiaphas, which we'll talk about him in just a moment, who was the high priest at that time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. So Caiaphas said, look, stop talking about this guy as if he matters. Don't you think we ought to just take him out? That's what he's saying. Don't you think it would be better... If you guys are worried about Rome coming in, and shouldn't we just kill this guy? If you're worried about this guy, uh, people stop following you, follow him, shouldn't we just kill him? Verse 53. From that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot to kill Jesus. The religious leaders, the, the hierarchy of government in Israel, said, we're going to take this guy and we're going to kill him. And they began to plot, and they began to plan. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Caiaphas, because it's really interesting. What's, what's really interesting about the way the, the Jewish council is set up is it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, but the high priest is not appointed by that group. The high priest is appointed by Rome. Because during the 100-year occupation of Rome, Caiaphas served longer than any high priest, which means he was a really, really crafty politician. The leader, the high priest of Israel, was not a Pharisee, was not a Sadducee, was not viewed as a religious leader. He was a politician, pure and simple. That's what he is. His concern is what can we do to keep Rome happy? Because if we can't keep them happy, I'm losing my job. And so this whole plot of his, let's kill Jesus because it's better for me if he dies than I die. And a plot was revealed. Now, Jesus, of course, is aware of this, becomes aware of this. And Jesus kind of, and for two months, kind of 
I won't say he goes into hiding, but he starts traveling among these, these border uh, towns because they would, they would never look for him there. But these guys are out looking for Jesus, but they can't find him. I mean, they're, they're out to get him, and Jesus leaves. And the question is, if Jesus is, was the Son of God, God in flesh and blood, why did he run and hide? And the answer is, he didn't run and hide. It wasn't time for him to die. Had he gone to run and hide, he never would have gone back, right? When you hide from somebody, you don't go back, hey, I'm here. I mean, if this is not a game of hide and seek, he's playing. You know, I'm here, I'm here, it's my turn, I'm it. You know, it's not like that. He goes off for two months because for two months they're looking for him, but it's not his time to die. Paul tells us in Galatians that, the, that Jesus died when the time had fully come. In other words, when it was time for him to die, he would die. And, and that's what happened. So you flash forward two months from the, after the death of Lazarus. It's a Sunday morning, and Jesus climbs on a donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem. A man who's afraid for his life doesn't do that. And there's a, the, the big Jesus parade, you know, and, and they get the palm branches and they lay their coats out and they were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's a glorious day. And Jesus strolls into to Jerusalem and then he just goes and he leaves. And when he strolls in, it's if he says, hey guys, I'm here. I, I, I'm back. But they still couldn't get to him. On Tuesday, Jesus would go to the temple for the last time. It's the day we know the most about other than the events of his death. And, and it's the day he probably provoked the Pharisees in the worst ways. In fact, if you, if you study this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, what you see is Jesus kind of picked a fight on purpose. It's almost like he's saying, I'm here, we've got business, let's get to it. On Wednesday of that week, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, handpicked by Jesus, would agree to betray Jesus. So Jesus rides in on Sunday, on Tuesday he spends all day at the temple. On Wednesday, Judas says, you know what? I think I'm going to take matters in my own hands. On Thursday, Jesus and his disciples would gather and celebrate what we call the Last Supper, what we celebrate is communion. And they would spend the evening together. At midnight, they would leave there and they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane and they would spend three hours there. And after three hours, at around three in the morning, Jesus would be arrested. Three in the morning. You know why three in the morning? There's no crowds. There's no fuss. It's just Jesus and 11 of his followers because the 12th had gone. There's no, they're not, you know, they were worried about the crowds because the crowds were following Jesus. So if you, what do you do? You, you would arrest someone at three o'clock in the morning. 12 hours from his arrest, 12 hours from his arrest, Jesus would be dead. In 12 hours, he would, he would endure six trials. Three by Rome, three by the Jews. Every one of the trials that he endured. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Jews were in such a haste to 
to deal with Jesus. And Rome was in such a haste to pawn Jesus back to the Jews that every one of his six trials broke the law. Roman law was broken. Jewish law was broken. As a matter of fact, the Jews broke 11 laws to rush Jesus to justice. And here's the crazy thing. It's the laws they wrote. It's not the laws that God wrote for them. It's the laws they wrote to govern themselves. They broke 11 of their own laws because they were in a hurry to kill a man. Because that's what you do when you have a conspiracy. 12 hours, 6 trials. All illegal. But also during those 12 hours, Jesus would be beaten beyond human recognition. Historians say that his own mother would not have recognized him had she not known who he was. Now, you let that settle in for a second. On top of that, he was flogged. And he was flogged not by the Jews, by the Romans. Now, let me, there's a lot of confusion about this, so let's clear this up. Because a lot of folks say, well, he was flogged 39 times. Well, that's, that was Jewish law. Jewish law said a man could only be flogged 39 times. It's actually 40 minus 1 is the way the, the law reads. You know what the, the, the law of the Romans were when they flogged? When we're tired of beating you, it's over. That's how it worked. And they would just swap guys out. And so the, these instruments they flogged them with were pieces of metal or, or wood with leather straps with pieces of glass and metal and whatever they could find. And they would stretch you out. Okay, to, like this. They would tie you out and stretch you out. Sometimes they would stand you up. Sometimes they would lay you over a rock. And they would just start wailing. Flogging would rip the flesh off of your body. So Jesus, in the 12 hours from his arrest to his, he breathed his last breath, six trials, beaten on human recognition, flogged by the Romans. Flogging stopped when they stopped it. It was barbaric. It was the most barbaric form of death not named the cross. In fact, flogging was so barbaric that for a Roman citizen to be flogged, only Caesar himself could give the order. Flogging was so barbaric that if a Roman citizen was going to be flogged, it had to come from the highest government official. The leader of the whole Roman Empire is the only one who could decide if a Roman was flogged. Six out of ten people who were flogged died during flogging. Most of the rest died because of their wounds. It was brutal and barbaric. When you were flogged, you were not intended to survive, yet Jesus survived a flogging. Wasn't supposed to, but he did. And a last-ditch effort by Pilate... Who, real, who, who is himself a crafty politician, who realizes what's going on here. He, I mean, he knows the deal. He knows, he's heard the stories, and he's interviewed Jesus, and he knows that he's an innocent man. He's been accused of doing stuff he didn't do, and this is jealousy, and this is a plot. But instead of just saying, you know what, this is over, which he could have said, you know what, it's done. Leave it alone, or I'll intervene. Instead, he said, all right, I'm going to give you a choice. And he brought out the worst criminal he could find in his prison. A man named Barabbas, who is known as an insurrectionist, a murderer, and a robber. And he says, you pick. You got your, the, you've got this, the, this teacher, Jesus, and this criminal, Barabbas. But what Pilate didn't know 
was that the Pharisees and religious establishment had got the people all riled up and the same people who were screaming Hosanna are now screaming crucify him. Crucify him. You know, free Barabbas, kill Jesus. It was, by all accounts, a miscarriage of justice. And Jesus was killed. And the conspirators won. They got exactly what they wanted. Now, I know what you're thinking. They didn't win, but they did win. They just, they got what they wanted. They just wanted Jesus dead. And he was dead. Which leads us back to this question John MacArthur asked in his book. How does such a thing come to be that the Son of God would die at the hands of men? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was there before all this, this pain started, before the trials, before the, uh, the beatings. And he prayed some very specific things. And what Scripture tells us is there were 12 legions of angels. So I'm going to do the math for you. 72,000 angels who were literally waiting on the doorstep of heaven for Jesus to go, you know what, I'm not doing this. And they would have come down, and they would have cleaned house. Now, I want to help you with the math here so you understand how significant this is. 72,000 angels go, well, that's done a lot. I mean, it's a, you know, an army. Well, Isaiah tells this story about this one angel who killed an army of 185,000 all by himself. Angels are bad. And I don't mean, I mean in the best way. They are bad. So... Historians have calculated that based on the known population at that time, 72,000 angels, had they come to earth, would have wiped the earth out 53 times over. It is overkill. What Jesus reveals to us is there's an army of angels that's more powerful than anything on this earth. And all I had to do is say the word. But he didn't. And man won. Jesus was dead. But they really didn't win, right? I mean, they won, but they didn't because he didn't stay dead. This is what Isaiah 53 says. It describes this plan, and this is, the, this is from the message, and it says this. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. Talking about Jesus. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. God's plan will deeply prosper through him. In other words, Isaiah tells us 700 years, give or take a few years, before the death of Jesus, this was God's plan. Man had a plan. God had a plan. Man's plan was, we just got to kill this guy. Mission successful. God's plan was that man kill this guy. Mission successful. But God's plan was that Jesus was in control the entire time. In, in John chapter 10, he says this, talking about his sacrifices. No one, no one could take my life from me. Now, no one. That's not conspirators. That's Pilate, Roman soldiers. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to. I have the authority to take it up again for this is what my Father has commanded me. Jesus said, the cross 
is my plan. Two sides of the cross. Man's side, just kill the guy. God's side. Allow an innocent man, the son of God, to be murdered by people, to put his life in their hands when he could have taken it out any time so that we could be saved. That's the story of Easter. That's, if you're a Christian, that's your story. That's my story. I love, the, once again, from uh, MacArthur says this. He says, the cross of Jesus is the ultimate proof of the sovereignty of God. And it doesn't, uh, the ultimate proof of the sovereignty of God. His, purpose were, his purposes were fulfilled in spite of the evil intentions of sinners. It was the most horrific evil event in the history of the human race. It was a conspiracy of epic proportions. While at the same time, it is the most beautiful picture of sacrificial love, the purpose of God, the totality of the mission of Jesus. He bore the weight of our sins. He did it so that we could spend eternity with him. In other words, MacArthur says what the Bible reveals. Man had a plan. God used their plan to fulfill his plan. There was never a moment when Jesus was arrested at 3 o'clock in the morning until he breathed his last breath 12 hours later, there was never a moment that he was not in charge. Never a moment. There was never a moment when after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and he kind of went off to the, the border towns for two months, there was never a moment he wasn't in charge. When the angels appeared to shepherds in the field and said, I bring you good news of great joy that we for all people today a Savior's been born to you. There was never a moment that baby was not fully in charge. Because Jesus was always God in flesh and God in, in blood and Jesus and God sent him to the world to save us and he fulfilled his purpose by dying for us. And if the grave were the end of the story, then I would tell you, have fun with your families next week. Don't bother showing up here. But the grave is not the end. It's just the beginning. There was a conspiracy at the highest levels of government to kill Jesus. And God used that to save you and me. That old hymn, uh, says, um, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin and less a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's what the cross is all about, Jesus washing us clean. Despite the intentions of man, Jesus Christ gave his life for you. That's the story of Easter. Father, we are um, sometimes we I think we don't understand, we don't really fully appreciate how brutal the cross was. Sometimes I don't think we fully appreciate how brutal the beatings were, how humiliating it was for Jesus to be spit on, to have a crown of thorns ripped on his head that would have ripped his flesh open, to be mocked, to have the power to end it all. To have the power to take full vengeance on humanity. And the love and humility to save us instead of saving himself. 
That's what the cross is about. Jesus chose us. When he could have chosen himself. Lord, the cross has changed the story of so many people. If there's someone here today, the cross has not changed their story. I pray that you'll um, give them the courage to step forward and, and begin their journey in faith. We're so grateful you paid our debt. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand now?